But let's talk about cricket now. We did say we're going to go back. We're going to go over to the UK to talk about the return of cricket, the first international match since all action was suspended due to COVID-19. Leading sport stories of the day on SAFM. Of course, it ended with the West Indies beating England by four wickets in Southampton and we joined on the line by Dean Wilson from the Daily Mirror. Good evening, Dean, and thanks again for speaking to us here in South Africa. Yeah, hi, good evening. You're right. Yeah, we're fine. Thanks. We hope you're well too, Dean. Was that the perfect game to mark the return of Test cricket going all five days? I think it was, actually. Yeah, it was a, a thrilling match. Uh, kept us all uh, absolutely riveted to it right to the very end, which is, I think, all you can ask for. In a test match, it was um, it was the benefit of a slightly damp first day. We didn't get much cricket in on day one, but mm. days uh, two, three, four, and five were all uh, highly competitive, very interesting. Um, just showed what a great game test cricket is. And in the end, you know, West Indies came out on top. But uh, when we arrived there on the morning of that fifth day, you didn't know which team was was going to win it, and uh, and that was a fantastic advert for test cricket, I think. I was about to ask, needing 200 on the final day, would the West Indies have been favourite, knowing how they play either Calypso or Collapse of Cricket, as they say? Uh, look, I think scoring 200 was going to take some effort, and, and it showed, really, that uh, the way that uh, Jermaine Blackwood had to kind of keep that innings together, it needed someone to play uh, a special kind of innings to get them over the line. It wasn't going to be straightforward, and I think we saw... Uh, the way that Joffre Archer started with the ball that uh, that final morning, um, just how difficult it, it was going to be. But I, I think what um, we learned from that last day, very much one of the golden rules of Test cricket, which is, you know, you get through that new ball phase when the, the bowlers are freshest and the ball is hardest. If you get through that, uh, once the ball gets a little bit softer, it doesn't tend to do quite as much. Uh, and on a, a pretty docile surface, I think, West Indies were able to, to kind of cash in later on. And um, as I say, it was a, a fantastic advert for the game and one that really kind of um, told the story of, of the values of kind of playing test cricket um, from start to finish. Overall, in your opinion, what was key for the West Indies in that victory? The key, um, I, I think it was a, a whole team effort that got them over over the line, really. It was... Um, it wasn't really kind of one outstanding performance. I would say that I agreed with the man of the match decision um, to give it to Shannon Gabriel. Um, his performance, I think it was at the close of day four um, when he and Alzari Joseph kind of linked together to kind of rip through the lower order of England's batting or middle and lower order, I should say. Um, you know, it was the end of the day. You know, he's a big guy, Shannon Gabriel. He comes charging in. It's a long way for him to run up. He's got a big frame. It's hard, hard work for a guy like that. And the way that he managed to keep hitting, you know, high 80s, 90 mile an hour, right at the back of that day, uh, which I think really broke England's second innings. I think that was the, the turning point, if there was one. But, you know, it, it was, as I say, it wasn't just down to one man. I thought Jason Holder was absolutely outstanding throughout, yeah. uh, especially with the ball. Um, you know, Shane Dowrich is uh, 61. Uh, with the bat as well, he had a horrible time uh, on the previous tour here. So him getting runs was was absolutely vital. Um, so yeah, a team effort. But the big man Shannon Gabriel, I thought he was outstanding. 
For England, a lot was said um, when the lineup was announced about the decision to leave out Stuart Broad. I think it was the first time in over 50 home test matches that he wasn't playing. Uh, what did you make of that decision? I thought it was a brave decision. I thought it was a bold decision. I thought it told us a little bit about where England see their future. Um, you know, Stuart Broad, I think it's really important to say that Stuart Broad didn't do anything wrong, you know, didn't kind of deserve to be dropped, as it were. But these are unusual circumstances. very rare that you get all your fast bowlers fit and raring to go at the same time. Usually someone's got a niggle or two. And after the, uh, the lockdown and the, the pandemic situation, you know, everyone was free and, and, and fit to go. So it was it was an interesting call. And as I say, I think it was made with one eye on the future, one eye on the Ashes return um, in about 16 months' time where England are absolutely determined to have uh, Joffre Archer and Mark Wood, that extra pace from those two bowlers in their side. Um, and, and I think that's played a, a big part in, in why they made that decision. Um, I don't think, um, you know, Stuart Broad, if you'd added Stuart Broad to the team and taken one of those guys out of it, I'm not sure it would have made a, a huge difference to the uh, to the result. Um, but I, I must admit that it was a bold decision because Stuart Broad is, well, he's, he's nearly got 500 test wickets. He, he is an absolute legend of, of English cricket, of world cricket, and um, it takes a brave man to leave someone of that calibre out of the side. Is it true that he was not very happy and he went and he questioned the management about the decision to leave him out? <laughs> I think that's very fair to say. I think to say he wasn't very happy is also a bit of an understatement <laughs> as well. Um, look, Stuart Broad, I think, you, you know, um, South African cricket fans would have seen plenty of Stuart Broad over the years, um, especially uh, in South Africa. He, he's a hugely competitive and fiery character and, and the kind of guy that... You know, you kind of don't mess with. You know, he's a big, a big angry fast bowler when he gets a bit between his teeth, and uh, and it's that kind of competitiveness I think that makes him or helps make him such a great player. So, yeah, when you tell him he's not playing, um, there's going to be some repercussions. And and look, he, he he put his he put his views on the line. He, he did an interview on TV and, and made it very clear just how yeah. disappointed, how angry, how gutted he was not to be playing, and that. And I think, you know, that's fine. You, you, you want a bit of passion. You want a bit of emotion from your your sportsmen and women, um, you know, showing just how much it means to them, how much they care. Um, and, and you know you're going to get a reaction. The next time Stuart Ball pulls on an England shirt to play, um, he's going to be out to prove a point. So um, it made for some interesting and entertaining uh, viewing and, and, and writing over the last few days. But, um, look, you know, it's sport. Someone's got to play. Someone's got to miss out. Uh, and on this occasion, Stuart Board was that man. Well, the umpires were also also didn't cover themselves in glory there, uh, Dean. Um, it seems like they were a bit rusty and also need some time to get to 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 get back to 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 international cricket. What did you make of some of those decisions? I think there were five consecutive <laughs> decisions that were overturned. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Look, I, I would say um, it's almost a, a slightly uh, unfortunate situation that uh, when because of the, of the pandemic that you, you had home umpires standing in the game for the first time um, for a very long time. And uh, I certainly wouldn't question any of them and, and, and their probity or, or anything like that. But it was just a, a kind of cruel coincidence that I think the, the first five decisions that had to be overturned were all against 
the West Indies and, and all for England. Um, I, I must point out that things tend started to even themselves up a little bit as the game wore on to, to, to highlight that it really was just a coincidence. But both Richard Illingworth and uh, Richard Catterborough you know, two of the finest umpires out there. I think they were just a bit rusty. I think that, you know, like, like the players, it takes a bit of time to get back into the, the rhythm of umpiring, you know, uh, understanding the bowling, the, the, the conditions, pitches, the balls, all those kinds of things. And you have to remember as well that, you know, because they're English umpires, um, they don't really umpire test matches in England, so they don't really deal with the Duke's ball. They're umpiring um, games with the Kookaburra ball, you know, pretty much exclusively. Um, so, so you know, you add all those things together, and, and I can kind of understand why they made one or two mistakes. I think just like the players, they will be better for that run out um, at the Aegeus Bowl and, and uh, at Old Trafford, um, whichever one is, is in the middle, and I think they're going to sort of rotate with uh, the third umpire. But I think they'll be better for the game and, and probably get more decisions right than wrong uh, in Manchester, I think. Okay, great stuff. Dean, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving us some of your time here in South Africa this evening. No problem. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks. That's Dean Wilson, the Daily Mirror correspondent. They're just talking to us about that first test between England and the West Indies in Southampton. We're not going to leave it there. We'll talk to our very own Kanye Sochuaku also after this break. Also just get his thoughts on that match and some of the stuff that they wrote in the Sunday Times this past weekend. Tabiso Musiya on SAFM. Let's also get the thoughts of Kanye Sochuaku from uh, the Sunday Times uh, sports reporter. Of course, he joins us on the line. Kanye So, good evening and thanks for speaking to us. Uh, good evening, Tommy. So good evening, to your listeners. Your thoughts on that first test between England and the West Indies? Well, um, the fact that they actually managed to get a result with only 17 overs played on on the first day is testament um, to the teams first and foremost. Um, and the fact that the West Indies um, that when they were able to get play on day two, that that spell by Jason Holder. Um, I mean. England at least needed 300 runs, 300 or what in, the, in their first innings to actually make a good game of it. But it was a very good test match. Probably, I mean, we've, we've been missing test cricket. Um, but the fact that they were able to get in all four innings um, in those truncated days, um, look, it was a quality test match. It, 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 it's difficult to give it super, superlatives. And also looking at how we haven't had any live, or live cricket um, in particular, we've, we were able to watch... Um, the full test match, first and foremost. And also, it was a split in the face of those one four-day cricket because if there was a four-day test, chances are the game would have been a draw because day one only consisted of 17 overs, day two was truncated, and only day three, four, and five, um, when the sunshine availed itself, um, there was um, there was a, there was a full day played each of the last three days. So again, <clears throat> if the ICC is still entertaining, um, thoughts of having, of having four-day cricket, four-day test cricket, um, again, that test match proved that you need the full five games because it, the entirety of day one was lost. But a, a result on a very fair pitch was still generated by two very evenly matched teams. We saw also the new measures put in place for COVID-19. Bowlers not using saliva, players not using saliva to shine the ball. How did that go? Because I thought I saw they were using back sweat. Well, they had to. I mean, it, um, if, you, if you noticed, especially the England bowlers wore um, sweat bands with um, also... But I think if you looked at days three, four, and five, there was a fair bit of sunshine, and I think that helped um, the bowlers to shine the ball. 
But I suspect now, in, in, in far more batting-friendly conditions, um, that is going to be a bit of a challenge because, you know, with places like England, you're always going to get one or two days where the cloud cover is going to be able to aid the, uh, aid the bowlers. Um, look at what happened on day two when England were batting, there was significant cloud cover. And Jason Holder got the ball, Jason Holder and Shannon Gabriel got the ball to talk. I think the challenge will be when cricket resumes in the subcontinent because that's where that will be tested when the pitch will be probably at its best to bat from days one and two. And also, again, um, reversing will become an issue because also now not even pitch preparation, square preparation will become an issue when they prepare a pitch square. Are they going to prepare them in a way that the ball is scuffed up significantly so that the ball can reverse? Because um, sweat will be an issue, but also players will try to find what's available to make the ball reverse. Um, so are, while I think in England, depending on how the summer progresses, if the hotter the summer gets, uh, I think the easier it is for the bowlers to. It's going to be easier for the bowlers to um, to have a bit of fun in terms of shining the ball using sweat. But I think on cold days and um, on, on cold uh, on cold overcast days, I think that's where we, I think we'll start to see whether um, um, shining the ball become an issue. The players also took a stand to show solidarity to the Black Lives Matter movement. Considering all the hullabaloo that's been happening here in South Africa, what did you make of what happened in the UK? It's a necessity. It's a necessity. I mean, if you looked at the stories that have been coming through from um, players like your, Ches- your Chesney Hughes, um, your Michael Carberry's, um, your Mark Lane's, um, guys who, in particular, should have, act- should have at least, in Mark Lane's case, should still be coaching. Um, it should still be coaching at at least county level. A guy like Chesley Hughes had one very big county season and yet wasn't able to get a look in, in or get a look in for England. Um, Michael Carberry, an example, um, batted so well for, for England in the 2014-2015 Ashes, yet he never played after that again. So it's it's a very tricky thing that um, they're right when they succeed in England, the black, the black players based in England that aren't given as much of a fair due as compared to the white counterparts. I mean, the history of the West Indies being the passion against um, black oppression through the 50s, through the 60s, when Sir Frank Warrell became the West Indies' first all-time black captain, through the 70s and 80s when the West Indies were well-led um, by Sir Clive, by Clive Lord and Sir Viv Richards, where they were the expression of a black cultural identity and black dominance in cricket. So it, the West Indies were always going to be the leaders. And you could feel like for them it was an intrinsic thing to do. It, it, it came naturally to them to be the representatives of the, of, um, of the, of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, when the West Indies had two rebel tours here in the, in the 1980s, um, the players who took part in those tours were slapped towards um, life fans. Um, I mean, Franklin Stevenson was one of the best ever all-rounders produced by the West Indies, but because he went on that on that particular on the particular Rebel tour, he never got to play for the West Indies, despite the fact that he played and performed very well for Free State and for Nottinghamshire. So the, the, there is still a significant representation matter with the West Indies, where Black Lives still matters, and in in a captain like Jason Holder, a captain who was young when he took over the role, but he had significantly grown into the role as a player and as a captain, um, which is a significant start. Mm. Also, from a, Michael, from a Michael Holden perspective, when he explained the kind of issues he went to when he first went to Australia in 1975 
and also in which in the 1976, and also um, Ebony Rainsford Brent story where she had a very tough time as a black, as England's first female black cricketer. So it's those kind of stories that um, where people may say that um, all lives matter, but it's difficult to judge a black person's shoes until you've walked a mile in them. And people may say that apartheid would say would be ended 26 years ago. You need to get over it. Have you walked in a normal black person's shoes? for you to say that we must get over apartheid. So, again, there's, when Michael Holding says there needs to be an education, he is correct. And we, and in South Africa in particular, we need, to be, we need to have a very, very strict education and a very holistic education about our past and how people need to be educated and understand that what happened in the past, um, the foundations of apartheid, are still very, very visible. The spatial differences that you had in apartheid are still very, very, very visible in South Africa. So you cannot be denied that black lives matter. I mean, we've got bigger issues like gender-based violence, women's lives, black women's lives matter. But at the end of the day, the, the, the black body, the a black woman's body has been trampled on for ages. Whether it be in Europe, whether it be in the US, whether it be in South Africa, and those who speak out against black lives matter, um, they are in serious of education. Can you so Chaco, just stay with us. I just want to take a quick break because I want to ask you about these bombs that you and Tisa Tsumalepa keep dropping in the Sunday Times here regarding the suspension and investigation into Tabangmuru. Sport on on SAFM. We're still talking to Kanye. So Kanye, so I said earlier on that you keep dropping bombs with Tisetso in the Sunday Times here about what's happening with this investigation into the suspension of uh, the CEO of Cricket South Africa, Tabong Muro. What is the latest? What or what have you uncovered so far? Well, I think if you read the story on Sunday, is that there was a speech that um, Mr. Nzani was supposed to read um, on the week leading up to the suspension, and then he had a change of heart where then the board had a meeting and then Mr. Morwe, who was initially going to apologize, then actually did apologize. And then from there, um, he was then slapped with uh, the precautionary suspension, the suspension that um, still continues at this point in time. So, I mean, the more stories that emerge, um, if if we go back to that particular story where the terms of reference were changed, it's appearing that more and more that the board, the Cricket South Africa's board, are more intent on pinning something on Mr. Morwe. And the more stories that tend on emerging, it's clear that um, if there is any wrongdoing that Tabang actually got up to, it was worth um, the board's knowledge. And the fact that in that terms of reference where they say that um, the investigation or, or any reports in investigation must focus squarely on Tabang and, and, the, and the management team and not on the board itself is a very, 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 it, 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 it's a telling thing in that a CEO is appointed by the board. The CEO reports to the board. The CEO takes the mandate from the board. So it's very uncommon when you see a CEO um, acting on their own volition. A CEO takes the mandate from a board, from the board that appointed them. Because remember that before Tabang Mora became, um, he before the acting CEO, then he became the CEO. He was um, the vice president coming through from the central housing lines where he was president. So it's clear that the board... Um, has a lot of culpability. Um, they have a lot of culpability um, with regards to what happened with Tabang Morwe. But clearly they need a scapegoat. And in needing a scapegoat, they decided that we as a board will not take responsibility. And in not taking responsibility, they have now decided to put anything. But unfortunately, as things are now starting to emerge, the board, whatever, in whatever that Mr. Morwe did, 
And I see you also said in this, well, it was mentioned in the Sunday Times in a story by, done by Tisetso that Cricket SA President Chris Nanzani had planned to exonerate the CEO Tabang Murwe last year on behalf of the board in a prepared speech, but at a sudden change of heart. Um, can you repeat your question, please? I just lost you there a little bit. I'm saying I saw that uh, the Sunday Times was reporting that uh, the president, Mr. Chris Nanzani, had a change of heart on the CEO. He actually wanted to exonerate him. Exactly. So there was a prepared speech. According to this, this is a story that was and, and that um, we had possession of, and that speech then was supposed to be read on the third of December. If you remember correctly, Tabiso, on that particular day, CSA announced there was going to be a press conference at um, six o'clock. They, they did that at two o'clock, and then at about four, they they, they, they cancelled the particular press conference, and then that was moved um, to Saturday. On that particular third, then they had a board meeting, and then if you can remember on the sixth, then Tabang was then um, put on precaution suspension. And then on the 7th, where also, where on, 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 that, on the 7th of December, when that's when um, Mr. Nenzani decided that, uh, they, then they explained why Mr. Moro was suspended. So the events of the 3rd of, um, of December, where there was supposed to be a press conference, it was cancelled from where a board meeting takes place. That is where the change of heart took place. Unfortunately, Kisato wasn't able to get a hold of, um, tried, um, attempted to get a hold of Mr. Nzani, and unfortunately wasn't able to get comments from Mr. Nzani because now it's clear that the board, along with Mr. Nzani, had a lot to do with Taman's suspension. Um, one, the week before we reported that there was a change in the terms of reference. Isn't that an exoneration? The fact that you want now a specific investigation that is purported to be completed to now focus on the CEO, not on the board. And then the following week, there's a revelation that um, there was a speech to exonerate the CEO, and that was suddenly was changed within a space of four days. So already there's, there's, there's so many holes in this and how this investigation has panned out. What else can we expect this week? Well, we can only wait and see. If, if we, we can only wait and see. Okay, so we're going to have to leave it there. But thanks for speaking to us tonight. Uh, that is uh, the Sunday Times sports reporter there, Kanyiso Chuagu, just talking to us about that first test between the West Indies as well as England and also about what they've been uncovering here in regards to the suspension of Mr. Tabang Murwe. And um, they've been on the ball with this one here at the Sunday Times. And well done to Tuseto and Kanyiso there. And uh, they have now found a letter or a speech that was supposed to be delivered to exonerate Tabang Mura, but for some reason then the pr- president did a U-turn and had a change of heart. They were also the ones that broke the story about the changing of the terms of a reference there, which was confirmed to us also uh, by the lawyer of Mr. Tabang Mura, which was Michael Mutuneng Bill. I did. I know that we did say we would speak to Bega Odendal about his um, move from the Bulls to the Lions today. Surprise move because he was, he was captain, but then maybe if you've been following over the past few months, you would have seen some reports that some people were saying that is not in the plans of Jake White, uh, the new director of rugby, and uh, some other reports. Network Friend Twentach, for example, was saying that his salary was too high. It was 3 million rand a year, and the Bulls didn't want to keep him because of that. But unfortunately, we can't uh, speak to him tonight, but we will make sure that we speak to... Uh, Bega Odendal tomorrow, so definitely we'll do the interview tomorrow. We do apologize uh, for that. We were looking forward to speaking to Bega Odendal. And I can tell you now, there's a story that's just dropped on Spot 24. It says, Proteas head coach Mark Boucher's appointment has come under intense scrutiny in cricket circles with allegations surfacing that the appointment process was improper. How's that? Is it jobs for pals? That's the headline of News Twenty of News Twenty Four's article that just dropped a couple of minutes ago. We're gonna to have to leave it there. Then we definitely won't have time for that because it is eight o'clock and we have to go to news.